I'm Mitch McConnell's Flying Coffin, and welcome to the land of the undead GOP senators. And I'm Floppy Hair Joe. And the reason I'm Floppy Hair Joe is my hair is really floppy today because I ran out of hairspray. So <laughs> I know it's like it's all soft, blowing it, blowing it, it the, at the suggestion of a breeze. I wish you, could, I wish you could feel it. It's like it feels like uh, the tail of a skunk. McConnell's got to be a vampire, right? He's got to be pissed that they didn't turn him earlier before, like he turned into a turtle. You know those pictures of him where his hands like decaying. Yeah, <laughs> you can see below his suit and his hands like falling off. I'm I'm convinced that after you're your majority leader of the Senate for a while, something comes and starts threatening you, and like beating you up. Because remember when Harry Reid, quote unquote fell yeah. on his treadmill and was all bandaged bandaged up and now mitch mcconnell's hand is like dying and turning into a zombie zombie hand it's like there's a a demon that just waits in your your cloakroom <laughs> or whatever it's like <laughs> it's the curse of the senate majority we're gonna tune in to c-span one of these days and like chuck Schumer's gonna be missing a foot Okay, so before we get going, I just want to plug, we have the podcast is available on all the streaming major streaming services. Um, we prefer Spotify, but we're there for wherever you want to be. We have a an Instagram that's linked on our page. Neil, what is the what is the Instagram address again? It is at Planet of the Meerkats. We have a subreddit, which is uh, our Planet of the Meerkats. And uh, we also have a Twitter, which is P Meerkats. And we'd love to get uh, an email from you at pmeerkats at gmail.com. Are we going to get a TikTok, Dave? Uh, we probably should. So we're both wearing Steely Dan shirts today. That's appropriate. Yes, we are. You know, I'm disappointed because this is the first time I've worn this shirt in a while. And I haven't been approached and made a friend. I, <laughs> I just went and got my COVID vaccine, my first one. Mm -hmm. And I got it at the Oakland Coliseum, which has been turned into this giant vaccination site it is the most efficient thing that i've ever been witness to everyone pulls in and like kind of stacks like eight cars together all at once in a line mm -hmm. and then everybody in that sector gets a shot and then they move you on to like the waiting area and it's like so fast but i get through it and i'm waiting and this like national guard dude like starts approaching me this guy and he's like super jacked and you know i can't <laughs> see he's got a gator <laughs> over his face so i can't see anything except his eyes and he's like I had to come over and say hi because I see you're wearing a Steely Dan shirt. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, Steely Dan makes friends. <laughs> Dude, it is incredible like how often people want to strike up conversation about it. Like two weeks ago, I was wearing this and this guy came by. I was standing outside the pizza joint and he was like, oh, dude, that shirt. It's a combination St Steely Dan and Sonic Youth. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Can I have $5 to get a pizza? And I was like... <laughs> I hope right, you gave the man five dollars. I did give the man five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, fl floppy hair Joe, what are we here to talk about today? Dracula. Was that We've sufficiently on... scary, or do I need to do another take? Do another take. Dracula. There we go. That's pretty good. We've been on quite the Dracula kick lately, though. Yeah, we have. We did. We did a long segment on Nosferatu with mm -hmm. uh, Herzog. And then a whole segment on the occult in rock and roll. And now we're on Dracula week three. I uh, read the book recently again for like the second time around mm -hmm. around Halloween because I was in the mood for a good monster story. 
it's actually a pretty good book. It's very enjoyable. Um, it's written as a, a, a series of epistles because mm-hmm. it's it takes the form of a bunch of like letters and newspaper articles. So rather mm-hmm. than the author telling the story, it's all told through these supposedly primary documents. I understand the plot. But is there anything that deviates in the plot from the primary movies that we are going to draw from in this episode? So the the Coppola movie is pretty true to the story. Mm-hmm. He adds he adds a lot of like historical stuff that's sort of been inferred later on mm-hmm. and fill, fills out the story quite a bit. And he also adds in the love story, mm-hmm. which is not really a part of the original novel. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the movies will sort of combine characters in weird ways. I think we talked about Herzog's Nosferatu. Instead of the main woman being Mina, it was Lucy, and he mm-hmm. named this young man who died Mina instead. And, you know, in, in the book, there's there's like a whole host of characters. There's Jonathan Harker, and then there's Lucy, who is the friend of Mina, who is the uh, fiancé of Jonathan. And Lucy has three suitors, and she's like sort of coquettish and it, it one it, on one hand seems very pure, but on the other hand, like is like the biggest cock tease. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mina really is an interesting, she's almost a hero. She's like the secretary as hero. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not really allowed to get into the action at all. All the male characters sort of push her to the side. They're like, we need to protect you. But then on the other hand, the thing that comes through again and again to save the day are like her copious research and notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's kind of an interesting an interesting paradigm because, you know, it's very old fashioned in that she's not allowed to really take part in the action. But then it's it's almost a little bit progressive in how she takes on the hero role. And I think that was really played up in the Herzog version. She's mm-hmm. she's very much the hero of that movie. Before we get too deep into the the, the Dracula specific part mm-hmm. of the sort of vampire myth, fear of vampires like stretched, you know, back for probably hundreds of years before the publication of Dracula. What really was the sort of like foundation of that? Was that just kind of a collection of tales passed down over time and fears from the plague? What, where did that come from? I think it's emerging together of a lot of different sort of folk tales, and if you look at a corpse that's been buried or they, a corpse that has been dead for a little while, mm-hmm. the gums start to recede from the teeth. Mm-hmm. And so the the canines start to look very fangish, and the, yeah. the, the corpse starts to look <clears throat> like it's uh, almost taking on a new aspect. There was a real problem with people being buried alive back in the day. Our, mm-hmm. our, our mechanisms for telling if somebody was really dead, up until recently, were pretty primitive. I mean, you yeah. check for breaths, check yeah. for a pulse, but there were some conditions that would lower the pulse to the point that it was undetectable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes two people would be buried and then dug back up and they would have come awake in the coffin while it was underground and scratched at the lid. Mm-hmm. And so people thought, oh, this person was a vampire because they, they came back to life. And, and so they would, you know, cut off the person's head or whatever you do to get rid of vampires. So was Dracula specifically a, an invention of Bram Stoker? Yes, he named Dracula after Vlad Dracula the Third, Tepish, and Tepish means the Impaler, who was a, a, f- a 15th century prince in Wallachia, which is in Romania. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, to consolidate his power and assert his dominance, he invited all the rival families over, and then he had them stabbed to death and impaled publicly on spikes. 
<laughs> but that wasn't why he was known as the Impaler. The reason he was known by the Impaler is because he liked to torture people while they were still alive. He would stick a giant spike up their butt and have it come up their mouth. That's a vision I didn't want to have. <laughs> yeah. But he, he ordered the mass killing of 20,000 Ottomans. And what was interesting is he wasn't regarded as a villain in his day. Mm -hmm. He uh, was actually praised by a pope, Pope Pius II, for defending mm -hmm. Christendom, mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming, against the, the Muslims. And that's kind of hinted at in the in the movie, the, the book and the movie, right? Because he comes back from the Crusades, and that's when he finds that his... Well, I guess this is in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. He finds that his, his wife has committed suicide because she believes him to be dead. Yes. But in any case, he's returning from the Crusades when, when he becomes Dracula. The, yeah. the vampire. Now in real life, he died in battle and they didn't recover his body, which mm -hmm. is kind of a nice, a nice lead yeah. into him being undead. Mm -hmm. So one of the really interesting aspects of Stoker is that he was thought to, by later scholars to have likely been a repressed homosexual. Mm -hmm. And in 1912, the year that he died, he actually called for the imprisonment, imprisonment of all homosexuals in Britain. Wow. And I, I thinking about, you know, there's a lot of like homoerotic aspects of, of the novel, like the way mm -hmm. that Dracula treats Jonathan Harker when he gets to his castle. You know, it's very intimate. It's like that and, overcompensation thing that you see. It's like the uh, yeah, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the Lindsey Graham's a vampire. You know, it, it's interesting to consider, you know, was Dracula written out of, as, a, as a villain out of self-loathing? You know, mm -hmm. being homosexual, homosexual was almost regarded as a, a disease, sort of as a sin that can be contagious mm -hmm. um, back then. Well, in most portrayals of Dracula, Dracula is is a sexual, romantic, very assertive, in a lot of cases in film, I think comes off as bisexual. There, there's the lust for blood, but I think there's the metaphor of also just lusting sexually after young people well what, one of the things too in the novel is there's a lot of like blood transfusions and then obviously mm -hmm. dracula sucks the blood from his victims and will have him have them drink of his blood so a lot of blood going back and forth mm -hmm. and you know that was a hundred years before the aids epidemic mm -hmm. and you know I, for, it almost to me feels like it it presaged that so when nosferatu came out that was probably the first big film adaptation but mm -hmm. it was actually a legal battle right mm -hmm. because yeah. murnau didn't have the legal rights to use any of the characters from bram stoker's book and so that's why you end up with count orlock instead mm -hmm. of count dracula the widow actually won the lawsuit and had all of the prints of the film destroyed it's a miracle that we actually still have prints of this movie that we can watch today is this one of those things where they found a print like in someone's closet I think so. I'm not quite sure. Was that Joan of Arc that you told me that uh, yeah. they found it in a closet? <laughs> yeah, they found it in a closet in a mental institute of all places. I can yeah, only I mean, think that they like had it there for movie night and didn't know what they had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when um, we were talking about Herzog, Herzog's adaptation of Nosferatu, you know, we we noted that it felt very much devoid of the sexuality and mm -hmm. sort of undertones in comparison to so many of the other movies that are out there. Yeah. And for this episode, we watched a lot of Dracula movies, and um, I still stand by that statement. <laughs> the yeah. Herzog film is an outlier. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, interestingly, on the copyright, Stoker messed up the paperwork when he filed it in the U.S., and so when they went to make the 1931 version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi, they realized that it was actually not copyrighted and in the public domain. 
And nice. so, whereas they had all these problems, uh, <laughs> Murnau had all these problems in Germany making his movie. They were, uh, they were able to lift the book wholesale for the, the 1931 movie. It didn't have to pay a cent to the, the Stoker estate. So did you watch the Bela Lugosi version? I've seen it before. It's very much a prototype of today's horror movies. The horror is very, very reserved. Like he will be in darkness and just his eyes will, they'll like light up his eyes and he'll just stare at the camera for a second like that. (laughs) And it's creepy, but you know, it's definitely sort of a, Mm -hmm. you can tell what they're doing. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of not creepy, we both watched Blackula. And uh, I, you know, I actually really enjoyed it, but Mm -hmm. it was like the opposite of creepy. (laughs) So the Blackula is about an African prince named Mama Walde Mm -hmm. who goes to visit Dracula in his castle for some reason. Mm -hmm. And Dracula insults his wife and basically says, she's going to stay here with me. And Mama Walde gets all up in arms and Dracula turns out to be a super racist. Well, he's, he's somehow involved in the slave trade and it's yeah. not entirely made clear what his role is, but Mama Walde uh, is asking him to end the slave trade yeah. and Dracula's like, you know what? I'm not going to. <laughs> and instead and, I'm going to turn you into a vampire. Yeah. And then before he turns him into a vampire, he says, now I'm going to name you after me and your name is now Blackula. Yeah. And he locks him in a coffin and there he stays for 250 years. It's definitely not a PC movie. The thing that was most shocking to me was just like the blatant disregard for the gay couple, you know, just the slurs. Definitely a little shocking to watch. Well, and one of the members of the gay couple was also black. And that was even like, he he was even lower in the social scale than the the white guy. I noticed that, yeah, a lot of substratification in this movie. And it was, it was almost like, you know, everybody was trying to preserve their place and keeping mm-hmm. the people below them down. When you watch movies from from the 60s and 70s, I think our our culture likes to glorify that time, obviously, mm-hmm. make America yeah. great again. But you know, when you when you're actually like think about what culture what society was like, <laughs> we've seen a massive improvement and I think bears like just appreciating that, acknowledging it, mm-hmm. and then acknowledging that there's work to do. But this movie definitely like highlights <laughs> that. <laughs> One of, one of my favorite things about this movie is uh, Mama Walde's facial hair. I, by the end of the movie, Blackula has eyebrows attached to his hair, which I think is a style that we should just bring back right now. Well, and William Marshall really had a lot of uh, gravitas. Like, I thought he was really good as uh, Mama Walde. You texted and said that you felt bad for him. I did. He seemed like a pretty stand-up guy when he went to go meet Dracula. And then he wakes up and doesn't know where he's at. He has this hunger. He hasn't eaten in 250 years. Mm -hmm. And then he finds a woman that reminds him of his previous bride that had been killed Mm -hmm. by Dracula. You know, it's, I think he was a real tragic figure. And at the end of the movie, he ends up after everything is said and done, killing himself because he, he just, he doesn't want the curse to continue. Mm -hmm. From Blackula, we, we go forward and I'm sure there were many other vampire and Dracula movies in the seventies, but then Mm -hmm. we get to Nosferatu, which is tonally quite different. And then from there we got lost boys. (laughs) Apparently the sack, you remember the saxophonist? Yes. After that movie, he'd be asked to do like shows and stuff. And that made his career. (laughs) That movie presents a Santa Cruz that might've never existed, but definitely doesn't exist. Now he used to spend a lot of time in Santa Cruz and like always wanted that 
that feeling of the Lost Boys to be recreated there, like the party on the beach with the bonfires <laughs> and the sa- saxophone. It's incredible. What other '80s vampire movies did we not did we not hit? Um, there was a movie called Monster Squad. You know, it's almost like because these mon- these old Universal monsters from the '30s and '40s didn't mm-hmm. really have much to do with each other. Yeah, I mean Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, the creature. But they were all part of the like the monster universe they established back then. And throughout time, Universal's tried to bring back that monster universe. And mm-hmm. I think it fails every time because there's not really anything that actually joins them together. So Emily is speculating that there weren't a lot of vampire movies in the 80s because of the AIDS epidemic. I push back a little bit. Obviously, the Reagan administration like tried to you know, suppress information about the epidemic and tried to basically present it as not existing you know, and tried to erase those experiences of the gay population. And well, they say that every every generation has sort of its monster movies that are a response to that generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's accurate to say that, you know, we had different monsters in the 80s. We had, you know, Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees yeah. and Michael Myers and, you know, all those guys, sort of these these crazy super predator characters. And I think a lot of that was born out of just, you know, general fear. There was a lot of, you know, crime was mm-hmm. up in the 80s. And... Yeah, that's a really interesting theory. And I think it goes back further than that, right? So the filmmakers that were making these movies were probably born late 50s. So they grew mm-hmm. up in the early 70s. And the early 70s was really probably the peak of violent crime in America. Through, you know, the first part of the 21st century, we've had a resurgence of zombie movies. Mm-hmm. You know, read into that what you will. Um, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where the CDC has issued half jokingly guidance on how to handle a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) For whatever reason there with the sort of dearth of uh, vampire content, the Mm nineties, I think vampires were hot again, right? You had Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola Mm -hmm. and you had interview with the vampire Buffy, Buffy, the vampire slayer and Bram Stoker's Dracula, like felt aesthetically with the times. So we talked Mm -hmm. about how, in comparison with uh, Herzog's Nosferatu, these movies could not be more tonally different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the exact opposite <laughs> movies. But I actually like found Bram Stoker's Dracula really, really entertaining. For one, yeah. the pacing is great. The sort of Victorian aesthetics, you know, taken up to eleven. Right, it's like mm-hmm. off the charts. Um, <laughs> you've got lots of star power. Gary Oldman is incredible in mm-hmm. that role. You've got Dracula's brides like feasting off of Keanu's boner, um, <laughs> which, which is was like kind of shocking, but also like, man, they went there. That, that props. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of blood flow there, right? <laughs> I know, right? It just makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it totally makes sense. I mean, poor Keanu, but <laughs> yeah. I feel like Dracula, when he came out in the Stoker novel, was really scandalous, right? He's supposed to sort of be this unholy figure. And, you know, we didn't necessarily have the same conception of antiheroes, which is where Coppola really went in his movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dracula's really become sort of a thing for the masses now. There was a postage yeah. stamp of him in 1997. There were the Twilight books and movies where he's sort of this romantic lead. And mm-hmm. sparkles in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's there's lots of kids shows and movies. There's a movie about little monsters that Nellie watches. And there's like, you know, all these little monsters that look like humans until they become monsters and run around and have fun. And then there's Hotel Transylvania. Did you watch A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? I watched like the first half hour of it and didn't finish. 
Well, there's a few things that I think are really interesting about it. One is that it reminded me of a Jeremy Rush movie. It's shot in black and white, like really high contrast. Like it felt spiritually in line with like Dead Man. It's got an all Iranian expat cast, the director. She grew up outside of Bakersfield and mm -hmm. shot that movie in Taft as a stand-in for Iran. And it's about this guy who his dad is a heroin addict. This kid like kind of dabbles in drug dealing and at, at one point meets a girl and kind of like falls for her and doesn't realize that she's actually a vampire. But what's interesting about it is the vampire is kind of this like a feminist avenger. Like she's choosing her victims as a way to avenge wrongs against women in this town, which I think is sort of flipping the vampire myth on its head a bit. I started to watch the movie and I was watching it with Abigail. And when the guy starts shooting up, I thought that's a little much. So we yeah, turned yeah, that off. Sure. And we've been on a Mel Brooks binge. So uh -huh. we watched Dracula Dead and Loving It. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which is definitely not uh, what, what you would call like peak Mel Brooks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you uh, rewatch Let the Right One In? I did not rewatch that, but I do really love that movie. I rewatched uh, it last night because I had forgotten some, some bits about it. And that movie is just wow. Well, I love the idea that because the girl, the main vampire well i guess she's a girl she kind of it's revealed she's almost hermaphroditic but at the beginning of the movie she's with this old guy and she i can't remember if she abandons him or if he dies but then she takes on the other kid as her new well yeah so human. basically what happens is that she moves in next door to this kid they're both 12 mm -hmm. she's obviously a vampire who was like turned when she was 12 so she's been alive for hundreds of years and she <laughs> starts to befriend this kid so she has this older human she lives with who supplies her with blood and everyone just assumes um, it's her dad yeah and he ends up he ends up dying and at that point like she like ramps up the relationship with this kid and mm -hmm. kind of like there's this campaign to kind of win him over now there's you can speculate like she's trying to recruit him to be she doesn't actually love him. She's trying to recruit him mm -hmm. to be the uh, supplier of her blood. But in the in the book, it's a little more complicated and a little deeper than that. The guy in the the guy in the book is well in the movie. He's portrayed as it's not really clear like why he's doing it. Like mm -hmm. it's kind of implied that you know he he probably was was like the the little boy who's the mm -hmm. main character in the film. Like at one point he was young and he fell in love with her and he was doing this because he loved her for the rest of his life until he died. But in the book, it's it's darker than that. He's actually like gets fired from his job because he's a pedophile. Interesting. And he's like he's like interested in her uh, sexually. And there's this whole so, subplot around that. So he's like his his own type of predator. Yeah. Uh, and they cut it out of the movie, I think, for obvious reasons. Well, I love the scene where she attacks everybody in the pool, and he I think the boy's underwater, and yeah. he witnesses the attack and sees like their feet cutting through the top of the water. Mm -hmm. She's I guess flying them around the room and eating them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what what I, what's really interesting is like there's this like feral quality to her in the way that the vampires presented. It felt like she was like an animal. There was this there was this like visceral reaction and this like sort of like animal sound and instinct and the face changed and they used CG mm -hmm. in like really interesting ways like just to kind of like do these like subtle manipulations. Let's talk about the playlist. All right. Sadly, there's no songs by the vampire Lestat because mm -hmm. uh, he didn't actually make any music. He just was a rock star in the books, the Anne Rice books. You have to include Vampire Weekend if you're making a playlist about Dracula. And then we've got Vampire Blues, Neil Young, which is uh, a metaphor for uh, oil extraction. Yeah. We can talk about vampire metaphors, but that that I think is the a real obvious one. Well, you know, and... 
what, what you know one of the things that i keep seeing pop up in the news and in, in magazines and things is the the quest to stop or slow down aging so that people can mm-hmm. live longer and that to me really strikes me as sort of the ultimate emulation of the vampire mm-hmm. um, is the ability to, you know, kind of stop time and live as your young self forever. But of course, there's always the catch with that. You're trapped forever and everyone you love dies or you can turn them into a vampire as well. But that's condemning them to hell. Xi Jin Lu, the Chinese author, wrote a story about a guy. It takes place in like the near future where the technology to extend people's lifespans to like 200 plus years was discovered. And in the story, the guy is thinking about whether or not he wants to, whether or not he wants to do this. And because he knows if he does, he's going to have to like abandon his girlfriend. And he's Mm -hmm. he's really torn about that. And ultimately before he can approach his girlfriend, she dumps him and she's like, I'm, I'm dumping you because I'm going to go into cryostasis and put some money in savings and come out in a hundred years when I can afford this, when the savings is matured. So he's like, okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, it kind of struck me as, you know, when this kind of technology comes along, it's going to be something that's really only available to the very, very rich. And it's going to create this even bigger gulf in society. I mean, can you imagine where we would be if someone like, Donald Trump was able to live to be 200 years old. Oh, God, um, don't even mention that. You know, I don't want to go into politics, but like insert whatever political figure you hate the most or that you you think is worst for your society and ask yourself, do you really want them to be around, you know, in, in 100 years? Or, you know, is, <laughs> is the natural lifespan good for these things? My question is, and not, not to get religious, look, none of us know what's going to happen after this. Mm-hmm. Chances are it's not going to be what we think it's going to happen. But it could be really cool. So why sit around and do the same thing forever on Earth when you can go do the next cool thing? Just let it go, people. There was a book that I I started to read and didn't finish because it was too much of a bummer. It basically takes place in the near future and the current like retiring generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that technology becomes available. And so they keep living and living and society sort of atrophies. And it's kind of, it was a really interesting, if not depressing take on that because you had all these people that were retired sort of perpetually. Yeah. We cannot afford to have people live forever. We, we already have too many people. <laughs> although, although we have a, a baby bust right now. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Where so, it's going to be a problem soon. You hear that listeners? Start doing it and making babies. Making we sweet more love. Babies. Before we go, Dave, I want to mention my favorite uh, vampire book of all time. Bonicula. <laughs> I know he's, he or she, I don't know, sucks the color out of the vegetables or something. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and then my favorite vampire is Marceline, the vampire queen from Adventure Time, who has gotten to the point where she doesn't need blood and just sucks the red out of things. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're wearing a red cape, she'll come up and, like, suck all the red out. <laughs> it's making it palatable to kids, right? It's taking the, like, yeah. like horror out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know the metabolism of a vampire. Like, how how does this work from a biological perspective? Well, seriously, Blockula was asleep in his coffin without any food for 250 years. Yeah. And he right. came out looking looking dope. Like, he didn't yeah. look bad at all. You'd think he would be, like, essentially a skeleton at that point. <laughs> I just love that there's a character named Skillet. And, like, Skillet <laughs> spends the whole time talking about how awesome Dracula's cape is and how he wants it. <laughs> that part was amazing. Plus... That club looked really fun. Well, and, and they're all hanging out there all the time. And maybe this is just like COVID me 
yearning <laughs> to go to a bar, but like I would go to that club <laughs> every night. Well, and you know, this really brought back. So, you know, I remember when Lord of the Rings came out, I really wish that like cloaks were in that uh, I could like wear sure. a cloak or a cape. And this really kind of brought that back for me because, you know, he really rocks that cape. Where I used to work, there was a guy in the building who who had a cape and he would wear it like over his backpack. And it was just a constant reminder of as, as cool as capes are in like Lord of the Rings and, and things yeah. like Dracula, like in real life, they don't look nearly as cool as you think they would. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're really going to do it, you got to go all the way like the full suit, like the tall boots like a bit like a giant hat like like you can't just do a cape on top of your hoodie with so essentially you have to dress you have to dress like a pimp or nothing like... yeah exactly <laughs> if if it was like financially feasible i would dress like a pimp all the time it's not easy to do it these days like in the 70s you could right because like the clothes were awesome but nowadays i think it would cost some coin all right dave what are we gonna talk about next week nukes nukes <laughs> nuclear weapons and nuclear nuclear weapons right oh man we're gonna have to talk about the pronunciation (laughs) because it's a great divider in our society we're gonna blow some shit up (laughs) probably not new neutron bombs h bombs a bombs bombs. dirty bombs big old farts nope not those (laughs) i'm mitch mcconnell's flying coffin and I am Floppy Hair Joe. And we bid you adieu to another week of Planet of the Meerkats. What? Goodbye! Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison. And our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.